Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I think the article allows us, when we dissect and deconstruct the sentences and understand what they truly meant, because the threat of things to come can be just as important as things that have already occurred. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor James Deitch discussing the 23rd, 25th, and 27th grievances in the Declaration of Independence. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor James Deitch, and he'll be discussing a number of the grievances listed by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. James Deitch has never published with us before. This is his first article, and it's actually a series of three articles, and he brings wonderful insight into the thinking of Thomas Jefferson, and in a number of ways, uh, the the ideological and political uh, approaches and objectives Jefferson undertook in writing the Declaration of Independence. He's also someone with a great interest in the German auxiliaries that fought in the American Revolution. He speaks German, and he has a lot of wonderful insights into how they folded into that world, especially the way Jefferson utilized them when making his argument. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with James Deitch. James Deitch, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Sure. Um, well, I, uh, I was born in Philadelphia. I grew up in the Bucks County area and about an hour north of Philadelphia around some of the uh, largest uh, battlefields of the American Revolution. Uh, when I was in my secondary education, it was a big part of understanding our, our local history. Uh, and the American Revolution was very much a part of that along the Delaware River. Um, as a teenager, I moved to Finland and attended school in Europe for a couple of years. And at the age of 18, I, I returned to the United States and joined the Marine Corps, uh, where I spent the next 13 years. Um, after leaving uh, the Marine Corps after a couple of combat tours, I had gone into the civilian world and uh, been mostly involved in land development, but it's always been a bucket list of mine to go and pursue a education and military history, and I uh, was finally able to do that and graduate from Norwich University with a master's degree in military history uh, in 2018, uh, with a focus primarily on the American Revolution in the, uh, the 17th and 18th century, uh, early American history. And, uh, you know, at, at that point, I was primarily focused on the role of ethnic Germans in our early history, and specifically the role during the American Revolution. And that has uh, led me to starting to, outside of my manuscript and my capstone, uh, start exploring independent articles on various subjects within that discipline. What first drew your interest into this topic? Sure. Um, 
it was actually a series of current events that caused me to consider the question that, that academics have been faced with and politicians as well, which is the relevance of the documents that our founding fathers created and whether they are still applicable in today's world and today's conditions. And that applies not only to the Declaration, but also the Constitution. And and so I was pretty familiar, I thought, with the Declaration and the text of it, um, but perhaps not as, as much as I, I might like. And I specifically focused in on the 25th grievance because it was relative to the subject matter that I am uh, somewhat of an expert on, and that is the role of the ethnic Germans. Uh, and, I, and I say ethnic Germans because German, Germany was, of course, not a country at that time. Um, and Hessians is inaccurate as a descriptor. So, uh, And I, I really focused on my own heritage in Pennsylvania. Um, so the, the 25th grievance in particular was an area that I was already inclined to go towards. And once I really deconstructed it, and it's a very simple sentence, um, it just piqued my interest to say, okay, well, what else? should I be considering and what else uh, should I review and, and what does it really mean? And uh, that caused me to dig uh, next into the 27th and then the 23rd. And, you know, eventually I, I started looking at all of it in its entirety. Um, but it is a, a rather disjointed um, series of ideas when you review it in its totality. Um, disconnected threads, as Carol Reardon would, would call it, I think. Why did you decide to approach this as a series of articles instead of one large one? I think in the simplicity of the document, the declaration, each one of the grievances by itself is fascinating. And, you know, I've had the uh, opportunity recently to look at a couple books that I thought were pretty relevant, one by Philip Davidson, Propaganda in the American Revolution, and the other one by Carl Berger, Broadsides and Bayonets. And they talked a lot about the propaganda of the Declaration of Independence and, and a lot of the broadsides that were relevant at the time. And when I started to deconstruct these individual grievances, I, I realized what complexity there was in them and the difference between the 25th and 27th in particular did not accurately describe things that had already happened. Um, you know, the rest of the grievances were addressing issues that had occurred or were occurring. And the thing that I found fascinating about the 25th and the 27th was that it appealed to the base emotions of the population that things like taxes and commerce couldn't really be all encompassing for the ordinary citizen. Yet the threats of the 25th and the 27th grievances could universally be applied to anybody, whether they owned land, had money, um, they would equally be affected uh, by the accusations that were inherent in those two grievances. Let's talk about the Declaration of Independence. Why did Jefferson choose to enumerate his arguments and evidence in the way that he did? Well, I, I think we... And you understand this, but I think for the audience, we, we've got to acknowledge that his thought process may have been very lucid, but we cannot discount the role that John Adams and Benjamin Franklin played in this. 
played in the writing of the document, but also the editing of the final draft of the document, which took a couple days to establish. You know, when you look back to Benjamin Franklin in the in the uh, 1750s and 1760s, while he was in France and, and London, um, he had very distinct beliefs and opinions about the way things should be, and they evolved over a period of time. And I, I would suggest that some of the changes and perhaps specific to these two grievances, you might find that there is a more heavy-handed approach from Franklin uh, towards some of these uh, subjects, and then uh, maybe a more discretionary approach from Adams as they edited out the final version. Um, So I, I, I think it's more complex than just saying that Jefferson created all these ideas. However, to your point, he did lay it out very simplistically that the uneducated reader uh, or more accurately, the recipient of the information as it would have been read to them in the taverns um, could more easily grasp. And there was enough content throughout the 27 grievances to find an audience with any segment of the population at the time. The application of the 23rd um, grievance scared the citizens, the, the colonials, enough to know that they were out pr- without protection from the king, specifically. And that made them all the more vulnerable from the impact of the, of the 25th and the 27th, what might happen to them without that protection. James, could you explain the 23rd grievance? Well, it states simply that he, that he being King George III, abdicated uh, his government here. Uh, here being in the colonies, he declared that the colonies were outside of his protection and outside the protection specifically of those who would wage war against us. And that in itself became a preamble for what was to follow. Remember, everything from the first all the way up to this point had talked about uh, commerce. It had talked about representation. It had talked about taxing. But that built up to the 23rd. And I think the 23rd grievance should have shook everybody by that point. Um, because now he had listed out a series of grievances that impacted the future of the colonies, impacted their ability to survive, uh, impacted their freedoms. But now in the 23rd, Jefferson would lay out that by abdicating these protections, what was to follow? would be that much worse because he would not utilize the resources of his rather small standing army to protect them against what was to come. And specifically that would be the uprising that they threatened from the slaves, indentured servants. And then again, in the 27th to make them fear a uh, uprising by the savages um, who they coveted their land. And then returning back to the 25th, the thought that the king would send foreign armies to their lands to wage war against them, uh, that was very threatening. Even though it was a breaking it down, it would have been a very common thing and an accepted practice, particularly for King George as his role as the elector uh, of Hanover. Um, There's a, a good logic that goes behind it. But the 23rd built up that fear, and then it was delivered upon in the following grievances. What was the 25th grievance about? 
Sure. So, so as I mentioned, you know, King George had actually originally, King George III had originally reached out to his cousin, Catherine the Great, thinking that he could procure 20,000 soldiers um, from the Russians. And it was a safe bet to deploy them to the colonies to restore order because the, the Russian soldiers would not share our culture or language. Uh, there weren't very many uh, Eastern Europeans in the colonies at that point. Um, and he was leaning on a familial relationship and a, and a historical military relationship. Catherine, of course, declined. Um, and so he turned to the fact that he had a rather small standing army and could free up troops from Gibraltar and Mallorca and go to Hanover and usurp the, the, the troops from that area to relieve the garrisons in uh, Gibraltar and Mallorca and, and um replace them. That turned into a series of events that included subsidy treaties with other polities within the Holy Roman Empire, various German-speaking princes and landgraves um, that were able to, in exchange for subsidies, provide trained troops and veterans that could augment and uh, become auxiliary troops to the British army in the colonies. Of course, none of them had been there yet. At the time that the grievance was written, there, there were no Hessian soldiers on, on American land. But they were assembling, and they were being recruited by Colonel Fawcett and others to directly come into service with the British Army. The rest of them were being recruited or traded. Uh, the Soldatenhandel, which is the German for the, the soldier trade, which was a common practice for a prince to go ahead and put a portion of or the entirety of his standing military at the service of another sovereign. Um, and, and that's how they entered into this. They're commonly called Hessians, but in reality, there was uh, seven other polities that provided troops under various subsidies. The Hessians provided the vast majority. And so they were both referred to universally and pejoratively uh, to describe all of those foreign armies. But they had not even embarked at that point. They were, they were at various collection port, ports, on the North Sea and throughout uh, what is now modern-day Germany, um, moving towards training areas and assemblage areas to first travel to England and then on to the colonies and ultimately to Staten Island where they would make their landing. So the, the threat of the 25th grievance that he was at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete in other words, they, th these acts were already started by the British themselves, but they would complete the works of death and desolation and tyranny already begun, but with greater cruelty, my word greater, uh, cruelty and perfidy, scarcely without any parallel amongst the most barbarous, most barbarous of countries and most barbarous of history. And then goes on to say that this is totally unworthy of a head of state. So He's appealing to the humanity of the king, which, of course, wasn't there um, in that grievance. And yet the wheels had already turned, had already begun. Yet this was a foretaste of what was to come because they had not they, they had not tendered any of these acts at this point. They had not caused any of this uh, cruelty and perfidy, as he as he described it. Yet threat of it was enough and the reputation of the Hessians was enough that it could incite fear into the colonials. And more importantly, to those who may have been on the fence or even loyalists who were not yet on the patriot side of the cause, 
but could wrap their arms around the fact that such cruelty would be indiscriminate. James, your latest article on the 27th grievance, uh, could you talk about that? Sure. So in the 27th, again, Jefferson would write that uh, in a foretaste of things to come, that the king, King George III, was exciting domestic insurrections against us. And what's interesting is Jefferson is careful, both in the 25th and the 27th, not to mention anybody specifically. He didn't mention the Hessians in the 25th grievance, and he didn't do that because he didn't want to offend and incite any revolt from the German-speaking people of Pennsylvania primarily. Here, he talks about domestic insurrections. What did he mean by this? Well, he was inciting fear that the slaves, which made up a larger uh, segment of the population than the colonials themselves, might rise up. And while we find scattered examples of trying to incite such behavior, it never really materialized in anything that was of great effect. Yet it caused people to take a look around and say, well, what if these domestic servants and these slaves rise up and they augment what could happen? Um, I, I don't recall exactly who said it, um, but it had a relationship to South Carolina, I believe at the time, that said that a, a landing of only a thousand British troops would have a false force multiplier if they were able to go ahead and liberate slaves in the South um, against the Patriot movement. And so that in itself to excite, to excite a domestic insurrection against, against us. But then he immediately launches into that he would endeavor, he hasn't done it yet, but the threat is that the king would endeavor to bring on the inhabitants from the frontier. So here he's talking about the, the Native Americans, and he describes them as merciless Indian savages, known for a rule, rule of warfare that is indistinguishable be, uh, from dis- destruction, that it would be indiscriminate, that it would take women and children and the infirm and not treat them any differently than a man of military age. And so that threat was something that was perhaps real and had been realized, but it had primarily only been realized when the colonials had pushed the boundaries of what the king had allowed. And so he describes that in other grievances where the, the colonials were not able to expand westward, uh, particularly beyond the Appalachian Mountains, because the king did not want to incite such insurrection from the Indians themselves. And so they, Jefferson, and probably stoked on by Franklin, outlined a situation that everybody could understand, where they've already created ill, Ill will with the natives, and now there is a threat that King George will poke the bear, so to speak, and get them riled up and encourage them uh, and entice them to rise up against the, the colonials. But yet again, it had not happened um, at this point. James, what do you think were some of the common themes used by Jefferson in his grievances? Yes. Um, one of the things that is interesting, and you, and you won't find this uh, without outside reading, um, of course, is that there wasn't universal condemnation of the behavior of the Patriot movement uh, per se. And there certainly was no ill will, 
felt towards the people that the British population deemed as their cousins. Conversely, the House of Commons was very uh, split up in their feelings about what to do about the American problem. Um, the House of Lords had somewhat of a different viewpoint, but Jefferson kept his focus primarily on the king. And so when he refers to he, he's careful not to condemn the British people or even the British government, but lays blame squarely at the feet of King George III. And so you will find the word he used throughout the language, um, which makes it personal. And the tyranny of one man over a blooming nation uh, is the way they looked at it. And I think that's the commonality that you find in all 27 of, of the grievances. He will get a little more inclusive in the blame earlier on when it comes to things like taxes and commerce. But on the, the more personal, uh, the attack, uh, the more personalized the descriptors and the grievance were towards the king himself. Which of these do you feel personally, James, uh, made the strongest argument for independence? Um, you know, that's, that, that's, that's a hard one. I, I think it would have to be the first. And, and I, I, the reason I say that is that the preamble of the Declaration of Independence carries much more weight for me personally as I read it. But when you get into the list of grievances, the fact that he begins his list with he, is a ref, he has refused to assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. Well, that sort of sets up everything to come. Because in the preamble, he talks about natural law. He talks about, you know, the way things should be. And if the citizen is reduced to absolute despotism, that, that there is an establishment of absolute tyranny over these states. And then he goes on in his first grievance to say, refusing his assent to laws, that the king himself won't recognize and live by the laws of man. That sets everything else up after that as just added weight. To the objection and the final conclusion that they should be separated. Those grievances in their totality supports the preamble that at this point that the political bands have to be dissolved where the people can are no longer connected and that they should have equal station. And this is how he begins the preamble. They should have equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them. And one of the things that we, we look at in both the Constitution and the Declaration is the fact that these are not rights for uh, the king to give or to deny. They're God-given rights. And so it's always throughout the language established both in the Declaration and the Constitution. It is not for man to give these rights to us. God already gave us these rights. But it is for man to strip away and deny that ultimately forces man to separate himself from a form of government that is destructive and will de deny them 
these rights and this freedom. Problem that you run into as you dig deeper into this, and this is probably a whole nother argument or segment and perhaps an article by itself, is that not so much in the Declaration, but certainly in the Constitution, the language had to be edited. And there was a heavy hand played by both Adams and Franklin in this to make sure that whatever verbiage was carefully constructed, and albeit I, I would concur to a certain extent it was propaganda, that wouldn't pigeonhole them into uh, disallowing some of the things that they were doing, such as slavery, to support their agricultural economy, um, because there's a lot of hypocrisy in that. And so they they were very careful in their language not to call out certain people and not to pigeonhole themselves into being accountable for some of the things that we find within this language. Um, that's where I think the, the, the real nuances are. Because circling back uh, to your original question, the most important is the, the immediate first one that lays out everything for the rest of them to be unacceptable. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the arguments that I uh, always engage in, and I find very few takers on this, is that we are always in danger of uh, accepting revisionist history. And as historians, we understand that we're not here to revise history, we're here to better understand it. And what we find through some of the works that I talked about earlier is that we can accept that propaganda has always been present uh, in any period of time, and then it's used to manipulate the feelings and emotions of people. So while I am not apt to disavow anything that occurred in the, in the period in which it occurred, we can look at these words through the lens of our current environment and understand why the words were written the way that they were written and, and how they truly are universal. I think the article allows us when we dissect and deconstruct the sentences and understand what they truly meant, because the threat of things to come can be just as important as things that have already occurred. So I don't mean to dismiss or diminish those, but these articles, I believe, will force the reader to look at the document by itself as much greater and more complex than certainly we learn in grade school and in high school history. And even for a graduate student, um, perhaps challenging when you put these words through a different lens and, and apply the, the ideas um, that way. It, it, it's fascinating to me. Um, words matter. Uh, you know, we've heard that it's a cliche. Um, the stringing together of words and the omission of words uh, are also fascinating. Why did, why did Jefferson use that word? Why did he not use this word? What happened during that editing process? I think that any, any student of history um, putting the, the documents themselves in the context of the earth of what was actually happening and what wasn't happening um, gives us a much deeper and greater understanding of who they were because once you once you start to drill down into some of these battles and major events, you find out that they weren't as clear cut as they actually appear to be or in the limited space of the pages that they're written on. 
Um, so that that's that's how I think it helps us understand uh, what occurred, the totality of it. James Deitch, thanks again. Thank you, sir. It was uh, enjoyable to you today. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>